0: Here we are again this Sunday morning looking at the book of Romans. And as we come to this section of Romans 11, I want to highlight for you what Paul is highlighting for us as the important issue here in this section. He is writing plainly to the Gentiles, he is dealing with this Gentile pride against the Jews and he is confronting it very plainly. A long, long time ago, back in the introduction to this whole series on the book of Romans, I'm sure that you remember the four reasons why Paul wrote uh, this letter. But for those of us who may not remember, notice with me B, Paul was writing the book of Romans to promote Christian unity among them. Uh, Douglas Moo writes, there were many synagogues in Rome by the first century AD. Enough Jews had emigrated to Rome to make up a significant portion of the population. But if the church was Jewish in origin, it probably added a significant Gentile element at an early time. Many of the initial Gentile converts would have come from the ranks of the God-fearers, those connected to the synagogue, those Gentiles who were not full-fledged Jews because they were not circumcised, but who attended the synagogue and followed the teachings of Judaism. The Jewish character of Christianity in Rome suddenly and dramatically changed, In 49 AD, Emperor Claudius, out of exasperation with squabbles among the Jews about some crestus, probably a reference to Jesus' claims to be the Christ, issued an edict that required all Jews to leave Rome. Jewish Christians like Priscilla and Aquila would have been included. Overnight, therefore, the church would have become virtually 100 percent Gentile. All the Jews are gone. By the time Paul writes, and this is about 57 AD, so some nine or ten years after all the Jews had been kicked out, Jews were allowed back into Rome, but they came back to a church dominated By Gentiles. In the nine, ten years that they have been out, there have been more and more Gentiles added to the church. One can imagine the kind of social tension that such a situation would create. Jews who stand in the heritage from which Christianity has sprung and who were at one time the leaders of the community now find themselves in the minority. Several key emphases of the letter make good sense against this background, including Paul scolding the Gentile Christians for their arrogance. Notice Romans 11 is highlighted there. Paul, in dealing with this book, has from the beginning talked about Jew and Gentile. I take the gospel to the Jew first. When they harden their hearts against it, then I reach out and I go to the Gentiles. Notice with me this uh, word of Paul, particularly to the arrogance of the Jews early on. Romans 3.29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? So you see what's gone on early on. The Jews are looking at the Gentiles and they. God can't save that kind of individual. And so Paul has to be a little pointed. And now as we come to Romans chapter 11, he is dealing with the pride of the Gentiles who see that God has dealt with the Jewish nation And they assume that as God has broken off many of the branches and brought in a number of Gentiles, they assume God is altogether done with Jewish believers and Jewish conversions. Well, I remind you, Romans is the most theologically comprehensive book in the New Testament and therefore the Bible. And Romans 11, maybe the most theologically challenging chapter or the most theologically comprehensive book in the whole Bible. So I can just sprinkle out a little dust, and we're all going to get the theological understanding and all the practical import in the right balance, right? Well, here we are. The international defense of the gospel is a part, is what Romans 11 is a part of. God's promises to the Jews will be fulfilled. Now, as we come to Romans 11, we need to understand there are two different views of God's saving focus. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this introduction. I want you to hear it. I want you to see it on the screen. There is a view of Romans 11 that says there are these successive waves of God saving focus. First of all, he saves a bunch of Jews. That's what he was doing in the Old Testament. Then with the coming of the gospel at the time of Christ, there is a concentration of God-saving Gentiles. Then there's going to be another era where God saves a bunch of Jews, and then there is going to be yet another era in which God saves a number of Gentiles. You can see it here. I should have put this screen up. So the first view of Romans 11 is God saves a bunch of Jews, then Gentiles. This is new covenant. Then close to the second coming of Christ. There is a saving of Gentiles, and that prompts something even greater, and that must mean that a group of Gentiles will be brought in. The second view is to notice that there is a different emphasis, but there is a contemporary saving focus. In the Old Testament, God was dealing mainly with the nation of Israel, but there were a few Gentiles that were saved. Rahab was saved. Job was saved. Bathsheba was saved. But but they are the exception. And now, with the coming of Christ, you need to put a cross in between these uh, uh, two um, sections. Now in the new covenant era, there is this uh, concentration on the Gentiles, but it's not an absolute thing that God is not saving any of the Jews, but there are many more Gentiles in the world than what there are Jews in the world, and so numerically I'm trying to show that there is a, a dominant focus of Gentiles coming into the kingdom. So these two different views. If we take the first one, what do they think? Well, they think that uh, the word will in verse 12 and 15 means that God is going, he will deal with the Jews. That means that far off into the future. Uh, But the caution is that these verbs, the verb will is actually missing. And so it's dangerous to put a lot of emphasis on a verb that is actually not in uh, the text. Then as well, for these who are seeing God dealing in waves, they view all Israel in verse 26 as meaning the whole nation of physical Israel. Well, not the whole nation, but most of the nation, a large number of physical Israel living at the time of Christ's return will be saved. Yet all Israel doesn't mean all physical Israel that was, will be saved because we know from Romans 9 that Esau is not going to be saved. So all Israel is the bulk of them. And the other thing that comes along with this is that the message, you Gentiles need to be humble because God is going to deal with national Israel at the end. And then at the bottom of the page here, there is still some distinction between Jew and Gentile. Some distinction remains because God is going to save yet all of physical Israel. The second view, contemporary saving focus, God is going to be saving the Jews in the Old Testament, but a few Gentiles. In this era, mainly Gentiles, but he can save Jews along with it. This is saying that since the cross, Gentiles and Jews are contemporaneously, same time, drawn into God's family and make up God's true spiritual Israel. All Israel, in verse 26, is a summary statement. And thus, all Israel, all true Israel, all from the Gentiles, all from the Jews, really from the beginning of time until the end, all of God's people will be drawn in. And then finally, there is much less of a distinction between Jew and Gentile remains. And here the message to the arrogant gentile is listen god is saving from you gentiles but god is also saving some of the jews and you better not be despising them as a as a people it, it, it would be like you and me you and i meeting an individual from some country And the individual is just not nice. That's the only one of that particular ethnic group that you know, but you're convinced they're all bad. Well, no, that's not the way that we can think for a moment. So there we've got two different views. Our second item for introduction this morning is to remember Paul's two different meanings of physical Israel and spiritual Israel. In the Old Testament, this physical nation. In the New Testament, this spiritual nation. A a nation on two levels, national and true Israel. In the New Covenant, there is this emphasis on my true Israel, my church. They will all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. You can see how Paul hammers away at this. There is an outward and physical Jew, chapter 2, verse 28. But the true Jew is the one who's been inwardly changed by the power of the Spirit. Romans 9 and verse 6, there is a physical Israel, and then there is a true spiritual Israel. And that's who God is going to save. Verse 8 physical children of Abraham, and spiritual children of Abraham. There is in chapter 11, verse 1, a physical people of God and a foreknown people of God. There is in chapter 11, verse 2, a physical Israel and the remnant of Israel contrasted in verse 5. There is in Romans 11, verse 7, physical Israel, and verse 7 as well, the elect Israel, the elect people of Israel. God. So when we come to that great and important decision in verse 26, when he says all Israel is going to be saved, is he sticking with a New Testament meaning of Israel, the true Israel, the people of God, Jew and Gentile, or is he reverting back to physical Israel? And then thirdly, by way of introduction, Two different figures. One is a first fruits cake offering. And if time would permit, I would have a picture of a first fruits cake. You take this into the temple and you offer it. But where did it come from? Well, it came from the granary where all of our early harvest has taken place and we got this massive pile of grain, and from that we just need four cups. So you have a pile of grain, and then you'd have this one loaf that is the offering of the first fruits, and you'd see the connection between that cake offering and the whole great big pile of grain. And if this one is good enough, if you could take four cups from that pile and use it for God's glory, then you could take any part of that pile of grain. And then the olive tree roots and the grafts. Both figures represent Abraham or the patriarchs as the beginning of God's blessing. Do you know about grafting? Well, you take this old part of the tree and then you get this wild olive branch and you stick it in there like this and you hope that there's going to be a connection so that the sap from the main one connected to the earth is going to produce life into that smaller one, this is to give you an idea oh, it looks like they're they're living a little bit of green on those, and this shows you how you can take that old tree, and this is what Paul exactly what Paul is saying you 're this tiny little wild olive branch that has been grafted into this great trunk of the Jewish patriarchs. Now don't you, as this little stick grafted in, get arrogant and despise that thing that is feeding you. What is wrong with you Gentiles? So what he is saying. And then the picture... And the other side here is showing how those grafts have really taken off. But what we need to keep in mind, and here it's grown further, in this one, this picture is to give us, this, it's like over here, we've got the natural branches. Some of the Jews are still being saved. And you've got Gentiles that are being grafted in. And they're part of the same stump. They're a part of the same people of God. And they all ought to like one another and glad for one another. Well, with that, let's see how well I can do in summarizing the message of these verses. First of all, Roman numeral one, God's gospel purpose in Jew and Gentile relationship. The question is, A... Is God completely done with physical Israel? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Isn't this the same question as verse 1? It seems like it's deeply ingrained in these Gentile Christians. God has gotten rid of the physical Jews and he's done with them. He despises them. He has rejected them. And so it's okay if I despise them and I reject them. Well, you, you, Whoa, 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 guys. You've gone too far. Yes, God has lopped off some of the branches, but he hasn't gotten rid of all of the Jewish branches. Secondly, B, does God have purpose in this partial rejection of physical Israel? Well, God always has purpose. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. And notice the development of the thought, latter part of verse 11. Israel's trespass or their wholesale rejection leads to salvation for the Gentiles. That's God's plan. Latter part of verse 11, salvation to the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. Verse 12a. Here's the restatement. Israel's rejection leads to riches for the world. The world stands for the Gentiles. Now 12b. Israel's failure leads to spiritual riches for the Gentiles. Repeating the same thing. And then finally, in verse 12, latter phrase, there's an implied benefit for the fullness of the Jews. How much more will their full inclusion mean? And some who are viewing the waves say, see, there were the Jews, and then there's the Gentiles, and then there are the Jews, and as we get all the Jews saved, then it's going to be of a greater benefit for the Gentiles. And that may be what Paul means, but that is not what Paul explicitly says. But for our purposes, let's step back and simply notice how God uses everything according to his will. God is going to use the salvation of the Gentiles to make some Jews to be jealous. And most of them will have a jealousy that leads them to be angry and despise the Gentiles. But for some, God is sovereign in the psychology of human individuals. Some are not going to remain angry, but they're going to start to think, why is it that these Gentiles are carefully studying our Old Testament scriptures. And they are claiming that there are hundreds of prophecies that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. What do we do with this? And they come to faith. Roman numeral 2, God's purpose. Roman numeral 2, Paul's special gospel relationship to the Gentiles. First of all, A, who is Paul specifically addressing? Well, it's pretty plain, isn't it? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And we've got to hear this with a little bit of a note of a spiritual father. A spiritual father who says, is God only the God of the Jews? Which one of you Jews is going to be foolish enough to argue for that? You see the silliness of your logic? And now this same spiritual father is taking his stand and says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. There's a problem here with Gentile believers. And there are times where spiritual fathers, whether apostles or pastors, need to give some input to an individual sheep. Notice here, in a mixed multitude, all the Jews are sitting there. All the Gentiles are sitting there in Romans 3 when he say, is he the God only of the Jews? And all the Jews are sitting there when he comes and speaks to the Gentiles, therefore do not be proud. It's rather pointed. And it's a model to us Of how in speaking to a mixed multitude, the application is made specific enough so that the Gentiles know that this medicine has got your name on the prescription. It's for you. Open your mouth. Take it in. Swallow it. Right now, this medicine is not for you. Your name is not on it. And there are times for an apostle, for a pastor, whether preaching publicly or addressing an individual in the parlor, parlor preaching, where an application needs to be made very specific. I don't think that you are getting this. Let me help you. That's my job. Secondly, B, what is Paul's connection to the Gentiles? I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul knows who he is genetically and who he is spiritually. Who he is genetically, he's a Jew. And he could say, I could wish myself a curse for my kinsmen according to the flesh. But he also knows that in the kingdom of God, God has made him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I know who I am. I know I am an apostle to the Gentiles. So of course I want Gentiles to be converted. I'm not going to be traveling around to be beaten and thrown into prison left a left for dead under a pile of stones and I don't really have any interest in them believing? Are you nuts? Of course I want you to be saved. I want God to wonderfully bless my ministry to you. Thirdly, see, what is Paul's desire for physical Israel? Verse 14. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. This is where my... Jewish genetics and my apostle to the Gentile comes together. The more of you Gentile characters that I can see converted, the greater good is going to be done for my kinsmen according to the flesh. And you know what? Really, at the end of the day, I'm a child of God, and I want these converted, and I want those converted. Fourthly, D., what happens when physical Israel rejects the gospel? Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Wholesale rejection by the Jews in the first century? Well, if they won't listen, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And we see this so many times as, as Paul comes into a city, it's to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And this is why. I want you Jews to see. This is the plan and the purpose of God. The gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. E, what happens when some of Israel accept the gospel? Well, verse 12 and verse 15, they both have will supplied. Many assume they're just talking way off into the future. However, Paul may simply mean that If Jews believe in Jesus in the first century, or right now in twenty twenty-three, then it will be wonderful news. Latter part of verse fifteen. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And some look at this in the various waves, Jew, then Gentile, then Jew again. And if some of them are converted, then it's going to mean life from the dead, resurrection from the dead. But I'm told life from the dead never means resurrection from the dead. It's supposedly far off in the future. But if it's simply saying that if some of these Jews believe, what will it mean but life from the dead? Life for them, spiritual life from the dead. And that will be good for the church if Jews are converted and brought into it. That will be good for the glory of God when these who are dead in their sins are brought to life. F, what is Paul's point in his two illustrations? The cake offering from the first fruits of the Jewish harvest. We use four cups out of the great pile of grain To make the cake. And and the point is. If that pile of grain is good enough. For God to take four cups out of it. And then take it into the temple. Can't God use any of the rest of it if he wanted to? The pile are genetic Jews. Descendants of Abraham. If he saved them initially then can't he reach into the pile? Well, but yes, but it says that they are holy. The first fruits, the dough is offered as a first, fruit, first fruits is holy. So is the whole lump, verse 16. If the lump, the root is holy, so are the branches. I take this holy in the sense of 1 Corinthians 7, where there's a believer and unbeliever married and they didn't know what, what do we do in this case? And Paul says, listen, you were converted as an unbeliever. Your marriage stands, even though one of them is converted. It's not an illegitimate marriage. It says that that unbelieving husband joined to this believing wife, it doesn't undo their marriage. That man is holy. Doesn't mean he's converted doesn't mean that he's going to heaven it just means that the marriage is not illegitimate and then the talking of the children that come from that mixed marriage those children are holy too doesn't mean they're covenant children have been brought into the kingdom of God and they're all going to heaven it just means they're not illegitimate children the marriage stands in the view of God and that's what's happening here that the pile is holy enough for God to choose Jewish sinners and bring them to faith. So don't be thinking, you Gentiles, of Israel as unclean and that God cannot save from the Jewish granary. Further, if the root of the olive tree stands for Abraham or the patriarchs, then the natural branches stand for all the physical descendants of Israel. And if God has taken that olive tree and he's clopped off a bunch of the branches and there's a pile of branches there and there's this wild olive tree over here, if God wants to get a sinner from the wild olive tree, save him put him back into it if god wants to come over to the jewish branch save a jewish sinner and put it back into the tree that's all fine that's up to god god has not placed an absolute curse on all natural descendants as if god could not call jewish sinners to himself You see, it's so easy for the human heart to take something of a truth and give it a twist, and especially to give it a twist in a way that makes me look really good, really big and important, and you are the despised of the earth. The Jews did it towards the Gentiles. And now the Gentiles are doing it to the Jews. How our remaining pride makes us susceptible to believing anything that lifts me up and puts you down. We must regard every single human being as made in the image of God and worthy, therefore, of our respect, our compassion, and our desire to see the gospel wonderfully change them and fit them to be right alongside of us in heaven. Is that optional? Is that my suggestion? Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind in yourselves which is Paul's special gospel relationship to both groups. Roman numeral three, Paul's warning against pride in the Gentiles. First of all, A, the reason for this warning against pride. These Gentiles, from their unconverted days, they they may have had interaction with unbelieving Jews that made them uncomfortable. And it may be that prejudice comes over, they're converted, they're in the church. Oh, look at that. Some of those Jews got converted. But there's still a looking down on them. Secondly, B, that's the reason for the warning. It was there. Secondly, B, the comparison method for this warning against pride. And he comes and he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you though a wild olive shoot. You see what he's doing here. You're like a wild olive plant. I, for, for many of us here, we know what a black cherry tree is. Grows wild. Not the prettiest tree. And, but it's prolific in its fruit. But the fruit is mostly the hard little nut on the inside, isn't it? Ain't much there to eat. And that's the way a wild olive tree produces. The, the cultivated variety, the pie cherry tree, they've got great big cherries, not those little hard black cherry things. And it's the same thing in the olive. And so Paul uses this illustration to say we've got the cultivated olive tree and we've got the wild olive branch and no one used the wild olives for fruit. I'm told that the Greeks would use the wild olive to make their, the wreath that they would put on the head of champions in the athletic competitions. Okay? I suppose you could get that from a cultivated branch, but you, but you wanted the You wanted those branches to be producing olives for you. So the Gentile hearing this from Paul said, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Paul, are you saying I'm like a black cherry tree? Are you saying I'm a wild olive? Yes, it's exactly what he is saying. Kistemacher comments, What the apostle is saying then is clear. He is telling the typical Gentile member of the Roman church who was tending to become somewhat arrogant that he, the Gentile member, should never forget who he really is. He, the Gentile, had come in from the outside and had been spiritually grafted in among the Jews. Only in this manner had he come to share in the nourishing sap coming out of the olive root To the proud Gentile member, Paul is saying, consider how much you owe to the Jews. It's a point well taken, isn't it? And it's rather graphically illustrated for us. When you see that, cultivated all of its old, and for some reason a guy is putting in these wild olive branches. Thirdly, see. A, the reason, B the comparative method. You're the wild olive, they're the cultivated one. Thirdly, C, the content of this warning. Paul warns the Gentile that he should not gloat over the fact that while some of the natural branches, unbelieving Jews, have been lopped off, that he shouldn't gloat, he shouldn't be proud. The, the the blessings of the earlier patriarchs have been there for centuries, and if you didn't have those pa- patriarchs, that's that's the means by which God is bringing this promise to you through Abraham. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. The Gentile inclined to look down with a de- degree of contempt on his fellow members, the Jews, is warned not to think of himself as better than they. You do not support the root. Again, get that picture back in your mind. You got that little wild olive twig that has been grafted in to the stump with all of its roots reaching down and drawing the nourishments from God. You do not support the root. But the root supports you the possible counter remark would be yeah but God lopped off all these branches so that I could be a part of this tree and Paul says yeah that's true on one level but don't forget they were lopped off because they were not believing God And right now in your arrogance, you're not sounding that much like a true child of God humbled by the grace of God. So you be careful. Because if they were lopped off because they didn't have faith, then you better know you're going to be lopped off if you don't have the kind of faith, the kind of faith that says, I don't contribute anything to my salvation and why are you proud? The kind of faith that focuses on the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. I am included in the people of God only by the sovereign, gracious initiative of God. If you understand your salvation aright, there will be no boasting about some other ethnic group. Don't generalize. You look at every single human being as an individual before God, made in the image of God and deserving. Don't generalize. Don't despise others. I despise somebody else because their skin is lighter or their skin is darker. How thick is somebody's skin? And on the basis of that, you're going to make some sort of judgment? You're going to make some sort of generalization? Don't despise. And don't fail to evangelize. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter their ethnic group. Doesn't matter their social class. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Roman number one, God's purpose. Roman numeral two, Paul's relationship. Roman numeral three, the warning against pride. Number four, Paul's warning against pride in the Gentiles because of God's kindness and God's severity. First of all, A, God is very kind in his unmerited favor. Notice verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. God's kindness to you. If God went over there to the wild olive tree that produces not very good olives and he broke you off and put you in here in his Jewish stock, then you need to be blessing God for his kindness to you. Here is God's kindness. The kindness of God in Ephesians 2, let me read from verse 4 jesus know the kindness of god and god is saying in ephesians 2 that it's going to take eternity for us to adequately measure the kindness of god to us secondly B, god is very severe to those who reject him the severity of god to those who have fallen Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Here is God's sternness, his severity. This is Jesus saying, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Paul rivets our attention on God's kindness and God's severity. Many in our day will only talk about God's kindness. And they won't talk about God's severity, God's judgment. But it's plain in the book of Romans, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's angry with the Gentiles. But then in Romans 3 and verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable before God. And finally, see closing questions. Child of God, what do you have that you have not received? that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, now verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And then this chapter goes on to say, oh, 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 you you Corinthian believers, you think you're so wonderful apart from us. You think you're so rich and you despise us. I think I'm discerning here a little bit of a problem. Pride can be a problem in the church at Rome. It is. And pride is also a problem at the church at Corinth. And I'm really going to go way out there on the limb and say pride is going to be a problem among Christians anywhere as long as they have remaining sin. And we need to watch it. We need to deal with it. Second closing question. Do you believe in the severity of God? Listen to Proverbs 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Lord, why did you punish me like this? I sinned the same sin forty-seven times, and you never judge me. You never let the hammer fall on me like you've let the hammer. You let the hammer fall on me. It's not fair. It's not right. God says it is fair, and it is right. I warned you over and over again, and there may be a time. It's not that my punishment is going to build. It may be that just all of a sudden you're broken. Beyond healing. Do you believe in the severity of God? And the smoke of their torment ascends forever. Thirdly, do you believe just as surely that the God of the Bible is a God of grace and salvation? Yes, he is a God of sternness, but he is a God of kindness. It's going to take eternity to measure out that kindness of God. So take God at his word that he will forgive you if you will believe. See this emphasis on, does this branch have faith? No, it doesn't. Break it off. Jewish branches, all there in the pile. Why? Because they did not have faith. Gentile branches... Make a profession, but they don't have ongoing faith. They're going to be broken off. Faith is all important. Faith or belief in God is absolutely critical. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in his perfect life? Do you believe in his perfect death? Do you believe in his perfect offer that if you will come to him, that he will have you? Do you believe that Jesus went into the grave so that you will come out of the grave? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be grafted in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the many practical lessons that we can see. Help us to take caution lest we become lofty and judgmental in our perspectives. Help us to see that every human being is made in your image whatever color, whatever shade, whatever economic class, they are all made in your image and they are all deserving of hearing the gospel of your Son. And each and all may be saved if they will but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our God, that you would help us to see the message here of Romans 11, that your gospel is to go widely. It is to go broadly. We are to evangelize to the ends of the earth. And we pray that you would get glory to yourself through our efforts in our own community and for a broader spheres as well. In Christ's name, amen.